Discussing the commodities markets, what's happening and why. We talk to the experts, the traders, the investors, and the companies they're investing in. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com. Hello and welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. I'm Dominic Frisby and in today's show we talk to Andrew Woollett of Zincox Resources. That is a fantastic mining story. We talk to Michael Coulson, author of An Insider's Guide to the Mining Sector. And finally, Dr. Bub keeps us up to date with the gold slingshot situation. A reminder that nothing in this program constitutes advice to buy or sell anything. That is our disclaimer. It is for information and entertainment purposes only. And a reminder that you can now subscribe to the show with iTunes. Go to CommodityWatchRadio.com and click on the subscribe with iTunes button on the left of the screen. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. He was a mining analyst for over 30 years in the city with a variety of stockbrokers. He is the author of An Insider's Guide to the Mining Sector, the second edition of which is being published later in the year, and he's currently writing A History of Mining. Michael, welcome to the show. Let's start. You've lived through many booms and busts in the mining sector. Where are we now? Are we in a commodity super cycle in the early stages of one of those, or are we a bubble waiting to burst. I don't like the phrase supercycle. Um, we've seen in the past uh, quite extended runs in uh, the metal sector, um, and we've seen it covering both base metals, the early 60s, uh, sorry, the late 60s and the early 70s, and then gold from the mid 70s through to the mid 80s. Um, I think what we've got now, and I don't think we've got a bubble either, I think what we've got now is um, a, a, a realisation that um, the power of the emerging economies of China and India, I mean, it's, you know, it's a given these days, and you know, I'm prepared to go along with that, could lead to a step change upwards in uh, demands for commodities, and that could run for quite a number of years, uh, maybe for, for the next decade. But I think we will see some nasty little downdrafts from time to time in metal prices and therefore in mining shares. One of the things you say in your book is, when you hear a lot of the analysts or the newsletter writers, one of the things they always say is, be an investor, stay invested. But uh, one of the things you advocate in your book is to take profits uh, on the way up. I think it's very important um, because at the end of the day you aren't going to end up you know, in, in, in simply in the Rio Tintos and the Anglo-Americans of this world. Uh, if, if you are a, uh, a performance-driven investor, and after all, why do you put your money into the stock market but to make money, or at least that must be one of the motivations, um, you want to secure profits. And, of course, a lot of smaller mining companies flatter to deceive. Um, and some of them, even when they're explorers who have discovered a deposit and eventually bring it to production, somewhere along the way there will be a period, uh, a hiatus, when nothing 
nothing happens and people will lose interest and the shares will, will if not collapse, will, will weaken materially. So it seems stupid to go in as a performance-driven investor and turn yourself into a long-term investor simply because you haven't taken the profit. Uh, you use the phrase, a lot of these smaller companies flatter to deceive. Um, you've no doubt seen, I mean, what's the Mark Twain phrase? A mine is a, is a hole in the ground with a group of liars standing around it. Uh, indeed. You've <laughs> no doubt seen many, uh, let's say, flatterers. Tell us about some of the great cowboys that you've encountered over the years in mining. Well, I suppose, the, 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 for me, the um, uh, real prime example comes relatively recently, which is Briex. Mm -hmm. Um, that uh, Busang project uh, in um, Papua New uh, Guinea, wasn't it? Uh, uh, no, it was in um, Indonesia, Indonesia wasn't, it? Sorry, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah, and uh, there's an amazing little story around that that um, the promoters uh, raised seed capital in this small town in, I think it was uh, Calgary, um, and or near Calgary, and um, they wanted a fire engine and when the value of the sort of town stock if you like had reached the level that they required they sold it all and bought a, a, a fire engine for the town of course Briex zoomed on and on and on and upwards and of course in one sense they lost a lot of money but at the end of the day they ended up with a fire engine and everybody else ended up with worthless paper mm -hmm. and the, the, the extraordinary thing about that project was that a very large number of distinguished and able geologists uh, who working as uh, mining analysts went over that ground. They were invited to visit Busang and they went over it and they wrote enormously optimistic uh, notes uh, on the project, which was really based simply on uh, what the uh, management told them which I suppose if Rio Tinto told you something, you believe it. But it was slightly naive. So nobody was uh, independent-minded enough to say, hang on a minute, there's nothing here? Uh, one or two people uh, did. There were some American investors who got uh, very itchy as the thing went on. They didn't like the way that the company was making its announcements. Mm. The announcements were becoming increasingly general and much, much less specific. A specific announcement will tell you drilling results, uh, you know, widths of ore, the grade of the ore and so on. They stopped doing that at a very early stage and simply every now and again reported, you know, our resources have gone from 10 million ounces to 15 to 20 and so on. Some American investors got very itchy uh, but were uh, in fact frozen out of, um, uh, you know, from asking uh, difficult questions at uh, company presentations. So there were, you know, there was, a, there was some thunder rumbling on the, on the horizon for quite a long time, but people chose not to, uh, not to hear it. Do you think there are similar um, peddlers of BS out there at the moment? I mean, obviously nothing on that scale, but... Uh, it, would uh, it would surprise me if there weren't. Um, for legal reasons, oh, you know, I couldn't say whether there was one that I particularly thought uh, was... Um, tricky shall we say but I have spotted one or two where I think I need to know a little bit more about this you know the one or two of the comments of the company there's one company talking about uh, the grade is so high um, that it doesn't um, uh, it's not uh, receptive to uh, normal kind of laboratory uh, assaying and therefore they will need to 
you know, to to work out a, a new way of doing this so that they can report the, you know, what they've got. And, and we've seen that before. Um, uh, there was, uh, there was a, a, a thing called International Platinum. I think I can say that because I think the thing has gone belly up where it was pretty suspicious and uh, you know, some comments were made that uh, sort of suggested, no, it may not assay properly, but actually there's a lot of, a lot of metal there. So I look for those kind of things, and unfortunately there are one or two out there. I've heard you moaning, shall we say, at lunch, that you think the majors are undervalued, quite dramatically undervalued at the moment. I, I believe they are, and um, the, the interesting thing is they're undervalued in a market where, because of the huge power of private equity and so on and so on, that um, these companies could all be targets um, for uh, even the Rios and the Anglers and even the BHP bulletins could be targets for these sort of uh, groups now because they've got such huge sums of money behind them. Um, and I would expect that, uh, you know, single P's that you can get on some of these stocks, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm, I won't specify yeah. you know, stock and P, but... All of the, the, big, the big UK ones, Rio's Extractor and so on, I mean, the, the, the prospective PE is no more than about 12 or 13, and it's, in certain cases it's lower than that, in single figures still. And what should it be? Um, I think that uh, it should be uh, above market average. After all, uh, there is nobody who is saying that this China and in India story is wrong. There are people who are saying it, it, it will be a cyclical thing in the sense that, you know, you can't have 10% growth every year or 12% growth every year, but that's what we're getting. Um, but that nonetheless, economic growth in these countries is, uh, and others like Brazil, is, is, is on a long-term, very high rather like the Japanese, a very high uh, extended growth rates. Um, and to my mind, that means that the longer-term prospects uh, for these majors, because they cover every metal that, uh, that is required, um, you know, they must be. The prospects must be good. And, and, and it, it strikes me that that should have a higher rating than a below-market average. So why are they undervalued? I think that... Um, the, uh, the mining analysts, uh, many of them are quite new to the game. Um, remember, uh, you know, the year 2000, mining people would, would fall asleep in five seconds if you started to talk about mining. The real upsurge in, in, mining, uh, in mining stocks, particularly metal prices, really hasn't, didn't start until about 2002, 2003. So, and, and then there have been quite uh, substantial... Um, uh, falls in some of uh, these mm. metals, um, so it it proves that, that that this is you know a kind of jagged rise, um, and uh, with with some nasty downdrafts. And um, I think uh, some a number of analysts uh, have got uh, concerned about this and say you know these are these are cyclical stocks, and um, you know though somebody is touting the story that China and India will go on growing at um, you know, 10% plus mm -hmm. into the future the, uh, the analysts aren't, aren't wearing it or if they are wearing it um, they're still looking at the stocks as being you know, just raw material they don't add a lot of value I see. Um, 
but uh, they don't take uh, the the aluminium stock still, of course. I mean, you, know, they, you have the final product, and you have the bauxite and yeah. the Rios and, and so on of this world do and do actually go all the way through. So they add value, but for quite a lot of them, it's a matter of um, you know delivering uh, copper cathodes to to the warehouses and the customers picking them up and turning them into what they want to. So there is a lot of value added going on there. But I still don't think that explains why. Or at least it may explain, but I, I don't think it's a, 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 a proper reason for not valuing these things uh, more sensibly. And that mentality, if you like, of the analysts has spread beyond the analysts and into the investors? I think certain investors who don't really know the mining sector or still coming to terms with it uh, think that way. I think there are a lot of very shrewd fund managers out there who've been in early and who are not leaving the party. They, they, mm-hmm. they don't hear the chimes at midnight. They don't hear the, you know, the pop of the last champagne bottle being opened. They can see quite a bit more, um, yeah. and, and and they will stay the course, and very probably um, add to their, uh, uh, you know, add to their holdings. But but the other thing which I find strange is too, there is so much M and A activity going on in the sector. But um, I can't see why the analysts can't see that. Yeah. But it's every time you get a pullback in these stocks, all of a, all of a sudden, as you know, somebody comes up. Actually, to a certain extent, some analysts take these opportunities, uh, 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 these down shifts, uh, temporary down shifts, to um, change their recommendations, because you know they're probably getting winks and nudges from their corporate department that um, you know there's something going on and um, you know they need to be aware of it. One of the things that uh, I always see that um, amazes me is when um, when presidents present their story they value their company with metal prices as much as a half the current metal price and uh, I, I think you know for example you have gold gold miners measuring their, their resource with $400 gold and you think well it's not. It's nearly seven hundred dollar gold. Yes, I, th- that is, is is a very interesting uh, phenomenon, and um, I suppose you could describe it as conservatism. Um, I, I don't know whether uh, certain of the mining companies know that if, say, the copper price stays well above three dollars a pound, that um, but within five years they will have doubled their production. Uh, you know, I don't know whether it's that kind of insight. Mm-hmm. Uh, there isn't a lot of evidence that it is. Uh, most mining company chairmen and, and presidents and so on seem to be more talking about the difficulty of bringing, uh, of finding new resources and bringing them into production, you know, mm-hmm. at, at quickly enough for for the marketplace. So it is a curious uh, thing. It may just be that the functions now of these big mining companies are so divided that uh, you know finance directors and the uh, uh, you know, the sort of forecasting stroke finance office where mm-hmm. maybe some of the, uh, you know, the number crunching is done, they, they, they are just uh, being conservative and they won't put in um, high metal prices. Maybe they do have, you know, a, um, um, a matrix of, uh, mm-hmm. of, of, of earnings at various prices and they probably do know what what would happen if metal prices yeah. stayed at the current level, which might explain why some of them are you know, quite prepared to go very heavily bidding for targets that uh, you know, appear like Lion Ore, for instance, a bit of a battle uh, developing over that one. But, I mean, if you believe the arguments of Jim Rogers and uh, uh, those of, who uh, 
concerned about, you know, the monetarists who are concerned about money supply growth and, and uh, inflation, then these metals prices are here to stay. Mm. I, th- I think certainly in the, in, in the, in the case of in, inflation, um, uh, there, there's, a, there's a lot of talk about you know, fixed um, you know, fixing of the of the indices, and that inflation is really higher than than it's actually shown officially by government uh, governments around the world. You know, obviously, I don't want to get into that, but I mean, I think that people have begun to feel that there is real inflation out there. Oh, I think I think you'd have to be a mug to believe the CPI, for example. Yeah, that is a complete fraud, in my opinion, and I'm quite happy to say. Um, let's, uh, well, while we're on this, this subject, I do want to come back to the junior miners, but um, I would like to have a guest. You're familiar with all the gold bug conspiracies and arguments. Yes. I would love to have a guest on this show who says that the dollar isn't going to collapse. Mm. Do you have an opinion there? Um, I try and stay uh, clear of, um, of, of forecasting currencies because I have no uh, real abilities there. Um, I, I would certainly be extremely nervous um, of the huge floods of money, dollars primarily, but actually a lot of sterling out there as Every well. Every currency. Every currency is inflated. And of course this is helping the, you know, provide the liquidity that's, that, that's driving some of the sideshows like the private equity mm. um, thing. So um, I don't think the dollar will collapse. Um, I think it may disappoint uh, you know, anybody mm. who, who, who expects it to, to rally you know, in, in the near term. As I understand it, 19 of the top 20 economies of the world have money supply growth at over 10%, d- double-digit money supply growth, and it's, I think Russia has over 40%. It, those are the sort of um, figures that in the past have driven uh, commodity booms, um, because you know, the, uh, um, um, uh, Professor Condon, who, who I knew when I was at, uh, at Messels, always pointed out that uh, if you looked at uh, broad money supply growth and then you looked at commodity prices, particularly metal prices, you would see a direct correlation. I don't know whether that's the case now because it's not something that I look at. I simply instinctively feel if there's a lot of money out there, Mm -hmm. you know, asset prices are going to go up. And the fact is that now commodities are an important asset class where they weren't 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about the uh, Australian nickel boom of the 1970s. Do you see parallels between then and uh, the current situation with nickel? Um, uh, do you know, I don't. Uh, the, the similarity is obviously that the, the, the price, is, as, as it did in, in, in the late 60s, in fact 1968 on the back of the Inco strike in Canada, I mean the price went to unheard of levels, but nothing like the levels we've got now. Um, but that was due to a really big supplier, a dominant supplier in those days, simply not, you know, not being in production, and uh, that strike was extended. So there was a special pressure, which allied with the fact that uh, Western Mining, which was primarily a gold producer, um, found nickel, and um, so you know the the market put two and two together, and you know thought it had made five. And uh, uh, this great excitement that was there was, 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 was sort of a phenomenon, it was rather like a, you know, people wanted to play and here was the plaything. 
Uh, I think now it's, 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 it's rather more serious. Um, there is obviously a major um, shortage of nickel, certainly in the, in, in the immediate term, and maybe even the medium term, which has driven prices up to a huge level. Um, nickel stocks in, in, in Australia, interestingly enough, the juniors have done pretty well. And one or two of the, of, of the people who, um, when Western Mining decided to pull out of nickel mining and just remain, just be a processor, um, bought old Campbellton, Western Australia, where the um, original discoveries made, bought them off Western Mining, have done really, really well. But it, it, th- this is much more of a sort of logical business-based uh, mm-hmm. drive. It's, it's, it's not speculative in the sense that uh, that boom was, with the craziness that, that, that went along with it. One of the things you say to be aware of um, in your book is mining companies who have taken over properties that had value in previous commodities booms, but never really made it as a, as a mine. Would you care to comment on that? Yeah, I, I, I think you have to be careful that, you know, if a project didn't work mm. you know, in, in previous booms, uh, the copper mines in, in the Congo, well, the DRC or Zaire, whatever you want to call it or now call it, um, they have been around for a very long time. There, is, there are signs that um, these uh, projects are now you know, coming coming to fruition, finally. But I would still be very wary um, of them. They are at the high quality end. There are just some things, some projects, which are metallurgically have always been difficult to treat. Uh, People come along and say, we've got the new process, we can do it. Uh, Usually they don't. Um, So I would, if I came across something that was coming up for the third time, I'd be, you know, I'd be very wary. It might just be like a a non-swimmer. I see. um, What's the ratio of, of, is there a ratio of um, companies that make it into, you know, that find a resource and actually make it into... Production. Is it one in a thousand or something like there, that? I mean, there must be a ratio. I have to say, I've, I, I don't know it, but it will be one in, in sort of a hundred plus. Right. Um, and, and indeed, that figure would be slightly muddied by um, the phenomenon where a mine comes to uh, production for a very short period of time um, and then, for a variety of reasons, metal prices or costs or something geologically un- un- unexpected um, you know, never it, it produces for two or three years and then never never does again mm-hmm. so you might include if you took those out you'd probably find the figure was you know, I don't know whether it'd be one in a thousand but it would be one in, in, one, in a lot, one in a very large <laughs> now we um, we've seen a I was going to say a healthy pullback well, we have seen a pullback in the in the sector over the last couple of months but there was a real frenzy about uranium that began the real catalyst for it. I mean, it's been going on for several years, but what catalyzed the blow-off was the flood at Cigar Lake. Do you have an opinion of uh, what's happened in the uranium? Do you think it's a, a bit of a bubble, or do you think there's a genuine... I've got a number of problems, uh, starting, to be perfectly honest, with uh, when the Insider's Guide came out. The uranium sector section that I wrote is quite wrong because it was finished just before 
the excitement started. Okay. It does sort of mention the price was beginning to flex its muscles. But I think the sector is, uh, is very, very tricky. Uh, uranium is one of the most common uh, elements you will find uh, mm-hmm. in the earth. And um, the, the grades of mines go from, like, Cigar Lake... Um, I think it's uh, it's a small. It was going to be a small tonnage, but very very high grade uh, underground operation, and, and I think it still will be, um, but obviously much delayed by the flood. And then you go up to much bigger operations where the the, the grade is, is is minuscule, you know, parts per million. And a lot of these uh, new uranium companies that have been doing so well, there are one or two which you can look at and say yeah, that's a substantial business uh, being developed. But a large number of them are touting uh, deposits that are, are known, um, have been known for decades, and um, didn't cut the mustard in the past. Now, because the price has gone from whatever it is, five, seven dollars to over 120, um, it, they're thought to be, uh, you know, potentially economic. And that may be correct, but there are so many of them, mm-hmm. and there are so many. Um, known and substantial deposits, particularly in Australia, which are undeveloped at the moment. The Australian government have now changed the rules. Uh, it, it won't be a smooth uh, process, but they have now taken the lid off and say, you know, we we are allowing development and export of uranium. Uh, the the potential for new production coming out, not immediately, but in due course, maybe in two years, is is phenomenal. It is much, much bigger, in my view, than any other metal or mineral. And um, I I think this is uh, an enormous bubble. And because people are so bullish, uh, this bubble has got uh, a bit further to go, maybe quite a bit further to go, but when it busts, it will be devastating. (laughs) Oh, dear. Well, quickly, I've got to stop this interview and sell my uranium stocks. (laughs) Uh, could I just add something yeah. further on your end? The other thing to remember is everyone's tremendously optimistic at the moment that all these new power stations that are uh, you know, on the, uh, on the planning stage will almost be with us in the next five to ten years. Um, we all know that, that wherever, and people always point at the UK and say the UK is you know, just pathetic about nuclear and you know, we're, we're far behind everybody else, so don't look at the UK as an example. And there may be something to that. But these things are technically, the power stations, which will be the consumers of the uranium, are very, very complex. They always run over budget and they are always late. The UK state building an operation that goes over budget. I, I, I'll never believe such a thing. Well, let's talk about uh, the, um, the juniors now. And let's talk about the sector generally. Do you, do you have an opinion of it? Yes, I... I think that um, what makes mining markets for investors fun is uh, are the juniors, uh, and we were, you know, we've been talking about how many can bring a project to, uh, you know, to production, and yeah. it's a very small number. But uh, it's 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 a very good, um, you know, gambling table, if you like, and uh, people do have. Um, the, the view that they can pick uh, the, the winners, few though they may be. Um, and I, I do actually think these days that um, the portfolios of 
projects, prospects, leases, whatever you want to call them and whatever indeed they are, um, that uh, some of these companies put together, or many of them put together, are actually very interesting. You know, there's, I get less of a feeling that, that the people who are promoting these are out there, obviously out to make money, but I, I, I think they've tidied their act slightly up. I'm, I'm not saying necessarily there aren't huge nasties out there, but, but on the whole, I think you can look um, at the prospectuses and, and you can see the story and you can make a reasonable judgment um, when you're buying at the IPO stage um, what it is that you're buying and um, what, the project, what the projects are and what the mm -hmm. calendar is for the, um, um, for, for the, uh, the, the company's um, programme of exploration and maybe even development. Um, so I, I think they are. I think they're. You may say, and that, well, that's just a matter of um, you know of, of presentation. But um, I don't think people go into these things any longer, or most of them, you know, not knowing what they're buying. Yeah. As I think in the Australian nickel boom that we were talking about, there was no question that uh, uh, you know people were diddled. They they really didn't know what they were buying because you know the the, the prospectuses, such as they were didn't really, often didn't make it clear. My superficial understanding of Briex is that the, the people involved were probably a little bit dodgy, but they created a monster, or they, they didn't necessarily create a monster, they set a, a monster in motion that everyone who was invested in it, it was, it's a, it was a bubble, it was a classic bubble. bubble. Yes, you do find those, and... Um, you know, I'm afraid we... we it was a madness that. of crowd situation, it was, wasn't it? Absolutely, and we will get that again, because that, that is often the way the, the story just, uh, you know, takes on a, a life of its own. Um, and even though uh, these days uh, you are very much aware that the regulator is breathing down your neck, um, some people still think it's worthwhile, rather like diddling your taxes. You know, yeah. there is a chance that you can get away with it. Which is the most undervalued metal at the moment, in your opinion? Um, I think uh, a lot of your listeners who, who know me will not be surprised when I say gold. Silver? Uh, yes. Um, I'm, I'm less... I'm, I'm, I'm quite enthusiastic about silver. Um, but it's gold that I'm really enthusiastic about. But yes, no, I, I would certainly think... Uh, that, um, having the, re the reason I said silver is that uh, if you look at almost every metal is at or beyond its uh, all-time highs. Gold is obviously $150 or so off it, but silver is still 80% yes. away. That's way, way down, yes. I mean, I know that $50 mark that was set by the Hunt brothers is slightly illusory, but mm. nevertheless. Um, why, why, do you say, why do you say gold? I... There are, there are a number of reasons for it. Uh, first, there are the sort of what I've described as hard-nosed uh, demand-supply. Uh, there's a huge amount of money out there. Um, commodities are now considered, once, once again, not for the first time, but once again, an asset class for investment. Um, gold, whatever um, the anti-gold people say, gold, it may be a commodity, and clearly it is because it's used in jewellery, um, and, uh, and has other uses like that, but it also is a monetary metal. I mean, you know, let's 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 stop beating about the bush. It is still seen in many people's minds as as money. And um, with high inflation, 
with uh, enormous expansion in liquidity, um, paper money, bonds, and so on. Um, but its it, its its position as a hedge against inflation um, is, I think, returning to the uh, you know returning to the market, and and I think that um, uh, you know that's that's that that is a critical um, element in in my bullishness on gold. But beyond that, um, production is not rising anymore. A lot of these mines are getting old. The South African gold mining industry, uh, when I started covering gold, uh, covering mining 30 years ago, um, the South African gold mining industry produced over 1,000 tonnes a year. It now produces, what is that, I think 275 and falling. These mines are getting old and costs are going up um, quite rapidly. We, when the UK government did its usual trick with British gold reserves and sold them at the wrong time, and sold them at 250, uh, roughly, um, an ounce, and um, people talked about themselves as a low-cost producer if they were under 300, uh, under the, plenty of people under 200 dollars an ounce. It seemed a very low figure that we were selling at, but well, at least quite a lot of producers were making a bit of money. Not probably a lot, because actually all the time the, the you know, cost pressures on the mines mm -hmm. is, uh, you know, are relentless. Um, now, we're talking about uh, 400, um, I think uh, Goldfields Mineral Services were talking about, 420. Um, this year, if there's a rise of, you know, seven or eight percent, we're talking about 480 is the average cost. There are very, very few producers who produce at under 300. There are not a huge number who produce at under 400. Mm -hmm. So you've got this, this problem, which is that uh, unless there is a substantial increase in the gold price, in my view, um, production will continue to fall. And there are one or two um, extremely uh, good um, discoveries around uh, this, this uh, Aurelian Resources thing in, in, in Ecuador. I saw that present actually uh, yesterday and it's a great story. It's I mean, I'm afraid I, I can't, you couldn't possibly buy it at these prices, but, but what a story. Yeah. And uh, Anglo Gold Ashanti with uh, Independence uh, Group, the Australian, who incidentally is a nickel miner, bought stuff off uh, Western Mining, but now has this Tropicana Gold uh, um, project, prospect. In, in Western Australia, that's another good one, but you know, you, you're struggling to find them. Even the great Yanacocha in, in Peru last year, production fell by 20%. These, a lot of these mines are just getting very, very tired and knackered. And it, it costs are rising, not only because you know, underlying costs like fuel and mm. labour and so on is rising, but also because um, you are mining lower and lower grade and deeper and deeper in the case of the South Africans. Um, I, to my mind, gold is the, is, is, is the winner. And if, if we're at uh, peak oil, we're also at peak gold, or we pass peak gold by the sounds of things. Um, I'm, yes, I, I, the, there is a correlation, historic correlation between um, uh, gold and oil. I didn't mean price-wise, I meant uh, supply-wise. Oh, supply-wise, yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, and uh, I think that um, you know, in, 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 terms of, in terms of gold, 
Um, I'm, not, you know, I'm not sure about oil, uh, but in, in terms of gold, uh, unless uh, the price uh, goes materially higher, it's, you are not going to get um, you know, much new production apart from one or two of the super ones, like Aurelian. But, I mean, how many gold explorers and, and junior miners are there? There are hundreds. There are hundreds. There are hundreds. And, and um, you know, you see from time to time some uh, interesting um, uh, exploration uh, reports. And you think, oh, that looks, that looks interesting. <coughs> and then you say, sort of, go and take a look at the company. And, yes, it is interesting, but uh, this is... Some of these people are very early stages, and the very nature of, 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 of some gold deposits is that um, you know you'll have a lease and you'll be putting you know drills drill holes down, and, and you may have a pod-like thing. So you know you find a nice one there, but it doesn't add up to much. You find a nice one there, it doesn't add up to much. Yeah. Uh, you know sometimes you find you know much something much more integrated and substantial, but um, uh, it's. It's, I think it's a, real, it's a real problem out there. And I think also um, the, the, the UK and Germany, for instance, as consumers of gold in the, at the jewellery end, uh, still tend to buy low carat, uh, which means you know, rings and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and jewellery items, which are you know, nine, that's nine carat here is still very popular, which is 36% gold. And in German, I think it's 14. Um, yeah, the, 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 there is huge room in, in this world where people will think of uh, you know, nothing of buying private aeroplanes and blah, blah, blah. And they probably buy high-quality jewellery as well. Let's be honest, they won't buy the people like that. The super-rich won't mm. buy nine carats. But there's, there are a lot of people out there who are well off, well, who could be with a proper um, uh, you know, uh, advertising marketing long-term program could, could be induced to you know, buy what I would describe as proper gold items mm -hmm. rather than very low carotage ones. I mean, I, what I like about gold is the fact that you can buy your bag of sovereigns and when you feel that your life is nearing its end, you can hand your bag of sovereigns to your heirs and go, here you go, darlings, here's your bag of sovereigns, and Gordon need never know. Uh, yes, well, um, I, I couldn't possibly make a comment on that, but the answer, of course, is that, uh, that gold has always been, uh, as um, I think, I'm pretty certain it was Greenspan, who at one stage was a very big gold bug. Yes, he was. In, was. in the 60s, and uh, as he became a more respectable banker, of course, he, uh, he became less and less uh, voluble on gold, but... Um, uh, when someone was sort of, you know, saying that uh, gold was, uh, you know, pretty pretty much a useless barbaric relic, as Keynes called it, he said, "How do you think the Germans paid for their oil after D-Day? You know, when the game could be seen to be increasingly up, how did they pay for their oil? They didn't pay with Reich Reichmarks; they paid with gold, mm -hmm. Very of, of which, of course, they had uh, stolen quite a large amount, as we as, as we know." The um, Bundesbank still, despite all their sales, they still have. I think they're still the second or third biggest holder of gold, government holder of gold in the world. They are, and, and they're an interesting point. I, I mean, I don't want to get into. I mean, it's, 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 it's a it's a subject all on its own. But you know, this conspiracy theory and so mm. on. I mean, the, the Bundesbank, you know, about manipulation of the gold price. The Bundesbank have in the past admitted as much that um, 
All their gold is uh, loaned out. All of it? They, one of the governors, or one of the board, or whatever they, they call them, the Bundesbank, was quoted sort of about two years ago saying that um, the uh, Bundesbank uh, might very well sell uh, down from its uh, gold holdings. Um, and uh, it, was, uh, it knew where all the gold was. It had, it had identified where all its gold was. Well, you and I might think, well, it must be in the central bank vaults in Frankfurt or wherever. Um, but the implication of what he said was that it wasn't. But we can get it back. We can go to Deutsche Bank. We can go to Rothschilds. You know, we can get it back and sell it. In other words, they can get it back and sell it again and keep suppressing the price? Or? Um, no, I think in that particular case, because that gold has now all gone out and is you know, wrapped around beautiful women's arms and you know, <laughs> and some not so good that it would need to be bought in, in the market. I've had James Turk on this show. Do you know James Turk? Uh, yes, indeed. And I've had Jim Dines on this show. Mm. Jim Dines said to me that America has not sold a gram of its gold and still uh, and will benefit from a return to a international gold standard. James Turk says America has sold all of its gold mm. um, and did so in the 60s. Who knows, who knows the truth? It's certainly the case that um, there were official figures uh, after the war which showed uh, US gold reserves at 23,000 tonnes. And I think their current level, which, which has remained unchanged for quite a long time, is eight eight to nine thousand tons. I'm not sure what the exact... But they won't is. allow an audit. They won't allow an audit. And people, uh, you know, congressmen have been asking for audits for quite a number of years. I mean, I mean actually... The fact that they won't allow an audit, to me, is, is dodgy. It's like Tony Blair and, and not allowing people to know whether um, little Leo had the uh, MMR operation, yes, MMR injection. It, it, it is crazy, and, and, and therefore the conspiracy, conspiracy theorists are encouraged to believe that if they won't audit it, then um, can you imagine a company saying you can't audit our sales? Walmart saying this is how much we, you know, this, this is our turnover, and someone said, well, we need to audit this. And they say, no, you can't audit it. Uh, we're telling you it's you know two trillion dollars, and that's what it is. Um, and you can keep out of the room <laughs> where all the papers are. I uh, went to an oil conference the day before yesterday, and one of the uh, speakers there said something very interesting. I mean, the, the normal thing that we moan about is Gordon selling our gold at, uh, at the bottom, which is now known as Brown's Bottom, yeah. which is rather nice. <laughs> but uh, the other thing we managed to do in the uh, 90s was uh, uh, sell off all our oil at uh, what now seems very cheap prices, and we now have gone from being a net exporter to a net importer of oil. So we seem to have an uncanny knack of selling off our assets during bear markets rather than... If you sell, if you're supposed to sell into strength and buy weakness, our powers do the opposite. Yes, I've, certainly with gold, the government is completely in control of, um, of 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 what it does in that particular area. Other assets may it may be able to have a strong influence, but certainly in the case of gold, it was its decision. And, and the the stories, as we know, are that the Bank of England said said we think this is wrong. Yeah, uh, but why why did he do it? What what, what was he thinking? He didn't. Need, he didn't need, I mean, was our deficit such that he needed to balance some books? Or? No, I don't think it was. I mean, I think we now do run an enormous deficit, but I, I think when he did that, um, we, we possibly, with 
um, are sort of city tourist type services thrown into the uh, in, into into the ring and, and, and aggregated. We we didn't have a deficit, so there was no. He said it was you know, in order to um, uh, uh, spread our currency risk, have some more yen, some more euros, and uh, and some more dollars. Uh, it never made any any sense. It was uh, it was crazy. I mean, I I, remember, I had no understanding of gold and its significance. Um, at that time, but I remember when it, he announced in the news that he was saying half or two thirds of our gold. I remember thinking that just there was an instinct there going, "That's not right. Mm. Why? Why does he need to do that?" Yes, and, and so the the conspiracy theorists, with I think uh, you know some justification, are saying uh, he was dancing to the tune of the of the Federal Reserve, who said. We've, 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 there are some problems out there. We don't want this gold price going up. There are some problems out there. We've got dollar problems. We've got uh, you know all sorts of. Mm -hmm. you know, we're talking about the the, the midish nineties, um, and uh, that um, we were we were part of um, a kind of what the Americans call this plunge protection team. You know, who mm -hmm. go in to stabilize asset markets. Um, in, in, in North America and perhaps increasingly around the world, and this was all part of it. You know, we don't want the gold price to get uh, overheated. The gold price gets overheated; it uh, starts to um, uh, reflect on the quality of uh, the paper assets. That was something that James Turk said. He 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 kind of turned the argument round, and he said, uh, "If we get a thousand dollar gold, what's going to happen is that's going to get on the news." Everyone's going to go, gold's gone to $1,000. Why has it gone to $1,000? And gold's suddenly going to get mm -hmm. a lot of publicity. Yes. And people are suddenly, you know, at the moment we're going through all these, what is the real measure of inflation, the cost of everything is going up, money supply growth is at this and that. And suddenly we get $1,000 gold. And it'll be, it'll be the final piece in the jigsaw for a lot of people. They'll suddenly understand that, every, you know, all these suspicions about inflation that, that currently exist are true. And we might see a little uh, mini mania. I, I, I think that's right. I, I think when you when you burst through, say, the old peak of 1980, peak of 850, you are then in 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 essence way to the races. But, but yes, once you go through the big one, a yeah. thousand, uh, you know, who knows what will happen. But it could go very quickly from 850 to a thousand because mm. at 850, everyone will say gold's at uh, all-time highs. That'll be the first kind of burst of publicity, then we'll go quickly from there to a thousand. And eight fifty to a thousand is only going to be a rise of what, fifteen, twenty percent? Yes. So uh, I th I think that's exactly right. I think it's exactly right. Then the then the mania takes over at a thousand. Um, and I, I just simply don't know how the authorities will respond because the authorities say gold is an irrelevance. You know, there's mm. it has no significance. That's why we're getting rid of our reserves. Right? Because we don't need a modern economy well, it does not need this, this barbarous relic. I'm, I'm reading a very interesting book at the moment called The Sovereign Individual, in which there are various predictions about the future. And one of them is uh, he sees the rise of private currencies. And if it's a private currency, it would, it would uh, have to be backed by something. And the most likely thing is gold. And I suppose in James Turk's gold money, and uh, we already have a kind of private currency. Do you, do you see that as a possible phenomenon of the future? I I don't not because I don't think that, that people won't try it, um, but I just think the authorities will come down. I mean, they will be in danger of losing complete control. To, you know, to a certain extent, you might sort of say the issuance of, of banknotes by the Scottish banks has a sniff of that, but it's 
you know, it is rigidly controlled and, uh, you know, is, is, is folded into the overall UK system and um, doesn't have to be backed by gold or anything. But if it was, you know, somebody set up a company with some enormous backing uh, to create a gold-backed um, currency, you might call it a gold-backed credit system mm -hmm. where you have, you know, book entries in and out and it's, you know, the, the, the whole process is backed by gold. Um, you know, you might be able to get away with that. But I think if someone started um, issuing IOUs, i.e. banknotes, mm -hmm. um, privately, uh, the authorities would, would be down like a ton of bricks. OK, Michael, you've got... I'm giving you £10,000. You've got to turn that £10,000 into £50,000. You've got three years to do it. Where would you put your money? I would first start off by um, trying to take advantage of the M&A boom that's going on in, mm -hmm. in natural resources. I'd look at uh, stocks where I felt they had um, um, an asset base that was, that was undervalued and um, that had some also strategic value. Because I think M&A players like strategic value. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes they're buying reserves, but sometimes they're buying... They're buying the future, they're buying political stability against instability, they're trying to improve the quality of the mix, and also maybe the, the, the influence that they have in their market. So I've been looking um, at those kind of stocks. I have to admit, there are some around, but there are less than there used to be because the M&A boom mm -hmm. has done what it has done. I would select um, one or two stocks... Well, I simply, which were, shall I, shall I call them developing new mines, potential new mines, you know, which are a long way along the... In other words, beyond exploration. Beyond exploration. Late stage development. Late stage development. Or going to pre-feasibility. Mm -hmm. Pre-feasibility and then feasibility and obviously production. Um, so I would try and um, sow some of those in. Then I think I would just, if I, you know, could... Uh, create a, um, a, a, a properly analysable list um, of smaller stocks where I liked the people who were involved. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and, and I'm not thinking just of a titular chairman you know, who's sort of rolled in for four lunches a year and kept quiet. <laughs> I'm talking about someone perhaps you know, who's yeah. um, <clears throat> an executive director and um, you know, of, of quality. And uh, I think I'd, I'd be interested in that kind of company uh, and um, I think it's important to have um, within a portfolio is at least one stock that you can rely on so it would be one of the big ones that, uh, that, that I a BHP about. or Rio one of those a BHP or a Rio Pro I mean well, probably, an, probably Anglo-American because I think that might be the one that's uh, quite vulnerable uh, or certainly could be broken up very nicely I mean, if, if somebody came along with Anglo-American and said, look, um, you know, we think this is breakable up, and you sort of say, OK, fine, uh, how are you going to do it? You say, well, 50% of it's in South Africa, so we're going to go and, you know, really brown-nose the South African government by saying we're buying Anglo-American, we're going to refloat South African Anglo-American, or Anglo-American and South Africa, as it used to be. Mm -hmm. And, you know, then we've got all these other assets that we can do things with. And, uh, you know, so it's very breakable up. I think BHP, Billiton and Rios are more difficult because they've got this strange dual registration 
mm-hmm. dual shareholder, dual corporate structure. Um, so th- that would be the sort of balance that I'd have. I see. And one final question. Um, we are told, we obviously both believe that uh, the gold price is going higher and the one of the uh, common beliefs is that with a, a gold stock, you get leverage to the gold price. In other words, if the gold price doubles, the gold stock might go up three or four times. But if the costs of mining are going up in the way that you describe, the cost of labour, the cost of energy, are we going to get that same leverage with the gold stocks? I think the price has to go very rapidly higher, uh, you know, in order for the companies to get ahead of the, um, ahead of the, the, the curve. Uh, and I can give you one example um, of, of that classically. Um, the South African major Harmony Gold was one of the best performers when the gold price finally left the 250, 260 mm-hmm. level and went up to 330, um, and I think we're talking about 2001, two. And um, the thing went up like a rocket. Uh, since then, the gold price has washed around, you know, the rand's gone up, the rand's gone down, currencies and costs have gone all over mm-hmm. the place, but mainly up. Harmony is now standing with the gold price of 660, standing at a lower level than it stood during that first rush in the early 2000s. Mm-hmm. And so the, the gold price has doubled again, and Harmony has not benefited from that. Because it's a high-cost producer, it's got to get ahead um, of the curve. But I think when stocks like that uh, do get... But the high-cost producers, surely they'll go up more. They will. the uneconomic suddenly becomes economic. That's correct. And, and um, you know, indeed, stocks like that probably would. If, 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 if what we, we've been talking about envisage the 850 and then the 1,000 and the pop-up of that, stocks like Harmony will, will actually you know, leave this... Um, sceptered earth or morbid <laughs> coin as they search high. It would be slightly illusory, I have to say. You know, that would be a sort of situation where if you don't sell the stock, you're not going to make the profit, however rich you are at this moment in terms of valuation. Um, because at the end of the day, these things do come, come back. I mean, gold, a lot of these mines, as I said before, are very old very high cost. So, yeah. yeah, we need that pop you were talking about. We get that, we can get some real excitement of these things. But sanity will prevail in due course. Well, Michael, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. And uh, I forgot to say this, but Michael is actually a neighbour of mine. He lives in the next street. So uh, I, I do hope you'll come on the show and do another interview another time. His book is called An Insider's Guide to the Mining Sector. Is this first edition still in print? It's still in print, yes. But um, the, uh, the second edition is out later this year. Later this year. And, um, I wouldn't want to stop people buying this edition, <laughs> um, but uh, the second edition obviously is going to cover... This was, came out in 2004, so... I see. I think I bought this one on Play, um, so I think you can still get it there. Um, that's a website, as I'm sure you know, yeah. a bit like Amazon. And uh, that's about it. So, Michael, thank you very much. Absolute pleasure. Commodity Watch Radio at Mindsight.com.
Zincox Resources have been one of the stellar performers on London's AIM market in recent years. They're well advanced towards becoming a low-cost producer of zinc and they're developing a processing technology which will provide a new and economic source of the metal. I'm sitting in their offices in Surrey with Andrew Woollett, their chairman. Andrew, welcome to Commodity Watch Radio. Why don't we start by, um, by you giving us an overview of Zincox? Thanks very much, Dominic. Um, most zinc comes from zinc sulphide, sphalerite, which is a fairly well-known route for recovery of the metal. Um, and sulphide accounts for about 95% of the world's resources, but about 5% comes in uh, other forms, which are collectively termed oxides, and it's these that we're interested in. They haven't attracted the attention of major companies before, and we've created our niche, a niche for ourselves looking exclusively at these materials. And the company now can really be divided into two parts. The first looks at traditional sources of zinc oxides, the, naturally, uh, the natural resources, the mines, if you like. And we're also now very involved with recycling. And indeed, it's the recycling side of the company which is attracting a lot of market interest and where our great, greatest growth potential lies. And I think having the two sides, the mining and the recycling, makes us uh, very unusual, if not unique, in the zinc business. Well, um, let's start with the mining, and presumably that's uh, where you're getting some of your cash flow from at the moment. That's right. Um, we are interested in two mining projects. Um, we are generating cash at the moment, which we think now is going to be in a, a way that will be sustainable from the future. If you like, we're at that transition between uh, the junior company, the explorer with no cash flow, to moving into the cash flow um, and production mode, and that's really where we are today. Um, some years ago, we obtained an interest in a project in Kazakhstan called Shemaden, which was an oxide deposit, an open pit, and very high grade. We were faced at the time with a, the choice of developing it or selling it on to one of the local smelters in the region. And because the zinc price was exceptionally low, $800 a tonne, project finance would have been very challenging. What, what price is it now? Uh, well, we're about close to $4,000 a tonne today. <laughs> so, um, uh, obviously, 800 was something of a low. And we agreed to sell the deposit to a local smelter, and they paid us uh, $7.5 million, and we'd spent about $2 million on it. So, after 14 months' work, that was quite satisfactory business. But we couldn't agree with them what the real value of the deposit should be, because at $800 a tonne, it has one value at $1,500 a tonne, it has a very different value. And, of course, at $4,000 a tonne, it's uh, spectacularly different. So we agreed with the uh, purchasers that um, we would get further deferred payments, which depended upon the zinc price at the time in the future when they got into production. And so, essentially, for every dollar that the zinc price is above $800 a tonne, we receive 23.75 cents. And uh, at the current zinc price, that becomes a very valuable source of revenue. Now, we didn't want um, the company that we sold to sitting on their hands and on the deposit and not developing it if the zinc price was high. So there's a deemed start date to production with a deemed minimum rate of production. And we didn't want them developing, developing it and mining it very quickly um, if, in fact, the zinc price was very low. So there's a deemed maximum rate of production. So that way we tried to get the, the payment spread over a period of between three and five years and we felt confident that within that time there would have been at least some sort of rise in the zinc price. But they, I mean, 
even though they have to pay you more money if there's a higher zinc price, they still earn more money if there's a higher zinc price. So Absolutely. And the basis for it was on their, uh, of the bonus payments were all above the then price. So it seemed to be a formula that was fair to everybody. And while I think it is fair, um, uh, we certainly have done extremely well out of our initial $2 million investment. Oh, it's a brilliant deal. The deemed start date of production was September last year. So we're now just starting that three- to five-year period where we can expect payments. And that really has put us into a sustained cash flow because by the time these payments finish, we'll be well into production with our other four development projects. Excellent. So you're going to spend the cash from uh, Kazakhstan on your, on your other projects, basically? Well, that's right. Um, we received our first payment just relating to the last quarter of last year, in January of this year, of $9 million. But at today's zinc price, the, the next payment, the payments are made annually based upon the average annual zinc price of the year in question. So our next payment is January 2008. If it were to stay at today's zinc price or something close to today's average price for the year, then our payment would be somewhere between 35 and $40 million. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, briefly, I mean, do you, what, what's your, do you think we're gonna, the zinc's going to stay at these prices? Um, well, it, I'll answer that question if you'll answer mine, which is what is Chinese growth going to be? Because this entire zinc commodity boom is all about um, increased demand. People will tell you it's shortage of supply, but it's not. That's just a, there hasn't been any drop in supply. It's been an increase in demand. That's where the supply balance or supply demand balance has opened up. So it's really all about will this Chinese um, growth continue? And will is it, it all China? It's is all not, the demand coming from there? A lot of it is Far East. India's becoming more important. But the thing that's really moved the price, to my mind, is China. And is the zinc, um, are the goods that they're making with this zinc, are they using it in their own country or is it to, to goods that they then export? Well, that's never quite clear um, how much of the zinc going into cars in China is actually uh, replacing, uh, being exported those cars and replacing cars that used to be made in England. I'm not the best person to answer that. Okay. So, well, that's um, project number one, if you like. You have a traditional late stage or traditional mine in Yemen that it's a late, at a late stage of development. Uh, why don't you tell us a bit, a bit about that? Yes, the Javli project we've been working on for a number of years and it's, it's quite challenging and it has required us to develop a new type of leaching approach which allows us to dissolve out the zinc and ultimately produce a very high quality zinc oxide. Now, um, the sort of quality we're talking about can be used as an industrial raw material um, it's a market of about a million tonnes a year, so it's about a tenth of the world's zinc goes into zinc oxide. And the biggest use of zinc oxide, it's, it's used in paints and ceramics and other industrial uses, but the biggest and most important use is that zinc oxide is an essential component in the vulcanisation process for rubber. So about 2% by weight of every car tyre in the world is made of zinc oxide. One of the uh, ways of making zinc oxide, and, and, and a large proportion of the world's zinc oxide, is made by taking shiny new metal, um, melting it, boiling it, and then the zinc vapour reacts with oxygen in the air and produces zinc oxide. So for a lot of producers of zinc oxide, their starting raw material cost is the cost of shiny new metal. As a consequence, zinc oxide always sells at a premium to the LME value of zinc metal. So... Although we're producing zinc oxide and not zinc metal, it is more valuable per tonne of zinc contained than zinc metal. So it's quite an attractive product to be in. Mm -hmm. It does present marketing challenges, but we've spent a lot of effort over the last 18 months investigating um, uh, ways into the market. Excellent.
And finally, tell us about your recycling project. No, I'm not going to. I'm going to tell you about the cost of Javelin first. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, we have a capital cost of uh, about $176 million, with um, a little on top of that for working capital, etc., uh, which is a lot of money for Yemen. We are at the moment in the final stages of arranging a, uh, if you like, a junk bond. It's a high-yield uh, bond specific to the Jabali project development of $120 million. It has a basic coupon, which is relatively high, but most excitingly for the investors, it has a kicker related to the zinc price. So it gives investors at today's zinc price very high rates of return on the bond. And it's an attractive way of us, for us to finance this, this otherwise challenging project. Mm-hmm. The greatest benefit of Jabali, uh, although it's been very challenging metallurgically, uh, has been the fact that we've come up with a process with very low operating costs, so that our costs will be well within the lowest cost quartile of production. What does that mean, challenging metallurgically? Well, we've had to develop a new technique to take the zinc into solution, um, and this is an alkali process which, although it's been widely used in nickel and copper, has never been applied to zinc before really because there's been a lack of ore bodies to which this sort of approach would be amenable. Finally, let's talk about your recycling projects. These are the ones that have got everyone uh, really excited. What exactly do you do? Very often in recycling waste or secondary materials, you become a logistics company rather quickly, and that's not really our core business. But we have found one source of waste, zinc-bearing waste material, which has been collected in sufficiently large quantities that it gives us really interesting economies of scale and that's electric arc furnace dust. Electric arc furnace dust is a hazardous waste produced by the steel industry. Essentially, about a third of the world's steel is produced by recycling scrap, which is simply a matter of remelting it in electric arc furnaces. But the volatile impurities, including base metals, and the zinc, which adheres to the iron, because a lot of iron these days is, of course, galvanised, ends up in the flue gases and ultimately as a flue dust. And it's that dust containing, in addition to zinc, iron, lead, cadmium, mercury, which is a hazardous waste, which is a problem for the steel business. At the moment, most of that around the world goes to landfill, and some of it is recycled in very energy-intensive technology, which produces a rather poor-quality zinc concentrate, and that zinc concentrate cannot be treated in conventional smelters, without another beneficiation stage. What we've done is come up with uh, a technique which is much more efficient than the technique used at the moment to produce the same sort of impure concentrate, but at the same time we recover the iron units in this dust as valuable pig iron. And that helps keep down our, or helps puts us at a much lower level of operating costs. Furthermore, we use a lot less energy, so we have cost savings there as well. The intermediate product is a problem for conventional smelters because they can't treat it without another stage of beneficiation. We've developed a leaching technique for that material which doesn't require any prior beneficiation and therefore our approach is much more cost-effective. Where are you doing this? Well, we have plans to put in two of these first-stage EAFD treatment plants, one in Turkey and the other in the United States. And these each will produce about 50,000 tonnes of zinc in this intermediate concentrate. 
then we ship that concentrate to our Big River zinc smelter in Illinois in the central US, and there we produce zinc metal. You'll be shipping it all the way from Turkey? That's right, yes. It's quite a high-grade product. It runs about 55% zinc. So um, traditional concentrates run about the same sort of grade, albeit that they're sulphides, and they're currently shipped all over the world. And how do you get the waste in the first place? Do you have to buy it or do you...? It depends where you are in the world on, on the regulations environmentally as to how seriously and how much of a problem this is for the steel mills. In Turkey, traditionally, they've uh, landfilled this material, um, but with the change for EU regulations, that's no longer acceptable. So our um, approach in Turkey has been welcomed by the steel industry who really need a low-cost solution. So in Turkey, the mills will not be paying us, but in the United States, where the environmental regulations are extremely um, onerous, then we would expect payment by the mills in the ordinary way. But it really does vary from country to country. So in the States, they're paying you to take their waste, and you're then making something out of their waste and selling that. Indeed. So if you like, it's a subsidy to zinc production. And surely, going forward, perhaps you should be looking at... Um, a similar process in China, which is the biggest consumer. I mean, presumably they're going to have the most steel waste. Yes, it's an interesting point. Um, uh, until China brings its regulations for the environment into line with international practice, then really we're unlikely to be doing business there. There's too much competition from people who uh, are not uh, required to meet any sort of reasonable environmental regulations. I see. And you, you are the only people that have this, this technology... It would be wrong to suggest that what we have is entirely proprietary, but I do think that our five years of research have culminated in giving us a, a head start, a competitive advantage against the opposition, and we are moving extremely quickly around the world. So um, in addition to that head start, we have a lot of know-how, which takes time to develop. What got you into this? What's your background? Well, um, I'm a geologist by background, and um, I ran a company before called Reunion Mining, which was an African exploration and development company, and we developed two, two mines, one for gold, one for copper. And we got involved with a project called Scorpion in Namibia uh, back in about 1996. And it was a zinc oxide project which had been held by Anglo-American for 20 years. They had failed to make it work metallurgically, and we came along, and with the assistance of a guy called Noel Masson, who was formerly the chief executive officer of uh, Union Minière, one of the biggest zinc producers in the world, with his assistance metallurgically, um, we showed that this deposit could become the lowest cost zinc producer in the world and uh, the tenth biggest zinc mine in the world. So we had farmed into Anglo-American's project. We'd earned our 60% and pretty much as soon as we did, Anglo made a takeover bid for reunion, which we recommended to shareholders. So that um, process which Noel developed, it was the core to the success of the project. Mm -hmm. And it that really was the raison d'etre, if you like, behind Zincox. So when Reunion was taken over, the management team were freed to join Zincox full-time. While in the early days of Zincox, it was clear to me that we should be looking at, at other materials, and we became aware of this electric art furnace dust. Mm -hmm. And with a grade of 15 to 25% zinc, electric art furnace dust is three to five times richer than the average zinc ore body. So as a geologist... It didn't really make much sense to me to go out into the bush and risk a lot of money looking for zinc when there were people in the developed parts of the world where there was a lot of recycling of steel scrap 
quite happy and prepared to give this to us for free or even pairs to take it away. When are you actually going to be selling the zinc that uh, you recycle? Well, the time frame for the three recycling projects is, is much the same. We aim to have all three up and running by the middle of 2008. Um, I think Turkey will be um, after the Ohio project, so we're really looking at getting up to full production by the end of 2008, early 2009 with commissioning. Fairly soon. Absolutely. Everything's happening very fast now. We were very fortunate in the States because the Big River smelter had been, has, you know, is, is built, it is an asset, which would probably have a, a replacement value, say, of $300 million. But we were able to pick it up because it closed about 18 months ago, and we picked it up for £8 million. So what we're doing is converting it using the technology that we developed for the Scorpion deposit in Namibia, and that's about a $90 million cost. Uh, and it makes it a lot quicker than having to build from scratch. And, and furthermore, all our permitting is already in place at Big River. So that's helped us to accelerate the development. And uh, once you get into production, what next? Well, we're looking at um, the, uh, the recycling side producing 100, just under 100,000 tonnes of zinc a year. But we believe it's a blueprint. We can roll out in other parts of the world. So the big vision, if you like, for the company is to have... Um, a central zinc production facility in North America, in Europe and in the Far East being fed by one or two of these intermediate production facilities. The McDonald's of zinc recycling. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> and um, why don't you just uh, tell us briefly about the structure of your company. What's your market cap? Um, well, we've got a market cap of about £160 million. We're on AIM. Uh, we've got no debt. We've got about £28 million in the kitty at the moment, which is uh, largely earmarked for project development. And then we have um, mostly institutional shareholders, well over 50% of our shareholders are institutional, ranging from small companies to natural resources funds and a few hedge funds. Who's your biggest shareholder? Our biggest shareholder is Tech Cominco. Um, as you probably know, Tech Cominco is one of the biggest zinc mining companies in the world, based out of Canada. And Tech have been shareholders in ours for some time, because they've always been interested in our technical approach. About a year ago, I realised that we'd have very heavy capital commitments this year and I felt that one of the ways of facilitating the fundraising was to bring on board a strong strategic industrial partner now because Tech Cominco were already on the share register it made sense to talk to them first and when I started to explain in more detail about our plan and our vision for the future for recycling they became more interested so in the course of last year, they conducted a very thorough due diligence on all our technology, uh, visiting our research and development facilities in Belgium, looking at all our projects. And their conclusion at the end of the year was, yes, they wanted to become more involved. They wanted to be that partner. So um, we did a small placing with them at the end of the last year to bring them above 10%. In fact, we placed 3.5% of the company with them uh, and then gave them a warrant for one year, uh, which would allow them to get to 15%. And uh, we're actually at the warrant price today, which was a 25% premium. So we are continuing to talk to Tech Cominco. And indeed, although uh, all our projects are sufficiently robust to support a very healthy level of debt vis-à-vis uh, -vis traditional project finance, my hope is that we can bring Tech Cominco more into closer to the project, closer to the companies, and involve them in the project financing, which will um, hugely facilitate that process and therefore we can move ahead even more quickly with these and other developments in the future. And do you think we're going to see tech recycling zinc? Um, well, I think um, 
they're very interested in the technology. They think it's genuinely sustainable, genuinely exciting uh, as, as a profit center, not just as a way of, um, of, of, of being in the sustainable zinc business. And so I think they're going to get more involved. But I think they recognize um, what we've achieved at Zincox, and they're very happy to ride alongside us for the time being. What percentage do management own? We own about five. And then we always keep about 10% of the company under option to staff and management. And there are about 20 people on that scheme at the moment. We employ a total of 67 around the so, world. So how many options are outstanding? Well, we always keep 10%. We've so got 48 million shares out and about another um, 4 million in options. Out. I see. It's yeah. important to keep incentivizing people. One of the biggest problems in the mining industry at the moment is attracting good people. Mm -hmm. And the advantage we have against a rear tinto zinc is we can incentivize our people better. We can't really afford to pay them better because you need a lot of cash to pay people. Yeah. But people will come and work for you if you can provide a more dynamic work environment and if you can compensate them, if you like, for the lack of pension rights, etc., with a really exciting option package. And that's what we're doing. Let's just touch briefly on the, on the shortage of, of personnel in mining. What, what other... It, for us, it's less of a problem than for many other companies. We only have one traditional mining operation we're running at Jabali in Yemen, and certainly it's difficult finding the right sort of technical staff on the mining side. But most of our investments involve processing plants, where really we're looking at chemical engineering rather than mining. And so what we've done to solve the problem is look outside traditional uh, mining um, experience and look at people with the right chemical engineering experience and bringing them into the company. From talking to you now, it's, it's apparent that, I mean, you did a great deal in Kazakhstan, you've got an exciting project in Yemen, um, you're getting into the recycling game or you've got into it at the right time. Uh, how much of these, um, your fortune has been through skill and foresight and how much of it has been through luck? <laughs> um, look, there's a great deal of luck in life. But wasn't it Arnold Palmer said, the funny thing is, the more I practice, the luckier I become? I think it was Gary Player. Oh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> Either way, it's exactly the same in the mining business. If you can fund failure and you keep going at things and you're persistent, you will be successful. Exploration is inevitably going to be successful if you can continue even through the failures. And I think what we've shown, my team and I have shown over the years, that we're very persistent people. So... Um, uh, there's definitely a lot of luck involved, but you've just got to try and keep plugging away through the bad times. And uh, finally, what, uh, what price are you trading at now, and what's your year high and year low? We're at something of a high at the moment, about £3.30. We've been up as high as nearly £3.50, um, and um, I think that's um, almost doubled over the last year. So it's been a very good year for us, but I think that just reflects um, people's increasing understanding of the importance of our recycling business. Excellent. And as we close, um, why don't you give out uh, your ticker symbol and uh, your website address? That's uh, ZOX is our ticker symbol, and it's www.zincox.com. Andrew Woodett, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. You're listening to Commodity Watch Radio with Dominic Frisby. Michael Hampton, a.k.a. Dr. Bub, is with me now. And uh, Last week on the show, Michael, you were talking about a possible gold slingshot situation being in place. Where are we with that now? Well, it looks like it might be happening, Dominic. Um, last week, um, we got uh, a low on uh, the middle of the week. 
where gold prices came down, and uh, they uh, came down in rather light volume. And, uh, and I'm now looking at the GDX, which is the uh, the gold stock um, ETF. It's really a copy of the uh, HUI, the Gold Bugs Index. And what I'm seeing there is that um, Wednesday was the turnaround day, and it's typical um, on these lows where the market opened lower and then basically rallied all day and closed on the high of the day. It was up a little bit. It was up about a half a point, just over half a point. But then on Thursday, we saw a uh, rise of a point from 30, roughly 38 to 39 in the GDX, and uh, that was on better volume. And then Friday, we got a, a gap up, and uh, that gap took it up to 40. So we've seen the GDX jump from 37.5 to 40 in, uh, in two days. And then yesterday, it's, it's pulled back, and it's basically, uh, it's kind of, filling a gap and building cause for further rise up. So I think this is, you know, doing exactly what I would want to see it do. And, uh, you know, I don't think we can rule out uh, that it will go back and retest the lows, but that's looking less likely every day. And I now think there's a pretty good chance in the next week or two we'll see uh, the GDX on its way to 42 and 43. And if that happens, um, we could well be getting uh, the slingshot move I was talking about. Now, what is the slingshot? Ideally, I'd like to see the market, the gold market, move by 50 to $100 uh, within the next three to four weeks, uh, taking out 700 and then also maybe testing and probably taking out 730 And uh, I think we'll definitely see that this year. But uh, I think we could surprise people and see that, you know, within – within June or early July. And uh, what's interesting about this, and I think we mentioned this last week, is a lot of people were looking for a sell in May and go away type move in the gold market. Instead, we got the peak in mid-April, and it looks like, you know, we might have uh, already already done the damage that was needed to be done. The correction is over, and it looks like we might be headed up. So uh, it should be more like buy in May and and, uh, you know, ride the rocket. So uh, <laughs> let's see if we get the rest of this move. And uh, fingers crossed. And now I've seen on one of your posts on GEI that while you're quite bullish on the gold stocks, you're less bullish on the general indices, which you think might be topping out a bit. Surely if we get a correction in the overall markets, we're going to get a correction in the gold miners as well. Um, well, I, I know... We've been seeing these markets correlate with each other. The gold market has been correlated with the stock market reasonably well over the last two or three years. But, you know, through longer periods of time, gold is generally negatively correlated with stocks. So generally, you know, seeing the stock market drop and gold go up is not unusual. And, you know, I would say we've seen times when the stock market drops and gold shares go up. And they're, basically what's happening is gold shares are sitting somewhere between being gold and being shares. And if gold is strong enough, they'll drag the gold shares up with them. I thought gold shares were supposed to lead. Yeah, well, it gets complicated here. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, let's kind of step back. And, uh, you know, another thing I think we talked about in recent weeks quite a bit is interest rates. And, you know, to me, that's probably the most important thing. Bond interest rates are still in an upward move. 
Uh, they've now broken up above 4.9%. Uh, the 5% I've been talking about, it looks very likely we'll see that, probably 5.2%, 5.2% before long. Now, what's going on there um, is, in my opinion, the Chinese uh, have stopped supporting the U.S. bond market. They've decided that they're not going to put as much of their assets into U.S. bonds as they used to. And so an important prop that's been underpinning the bond market is gone. And we're seeing that bond, the bond markets, uh, bonds are falling and interest rates, and that, of course, means interest rates are going up. So we've got a situation now where um, interest rates are rising, gold is rising, um, stocks are still holding up. Um, but the first two, the rising interest rates and gold, are really telling us that the risks of stagflation are increasing. And the stock market hates stagflation. So, you know, if we see that interest rates continue to rise, I don't think it's too many days before the, you know, the support under is going to disappear from, from, uh, from stocks. I mean, let's face it, I think the main thing that's driving stocks is the enormous amount of money which is going into buyouts, you know, into takeovers, private equity. It's, you know, I think something like, 30% or 35% of the takeovers have been driven by uh, private equity. And this is, and they're big companies too. I mean, they've been really massive companies. So what happens is when private equity takes over a business, it puts cash back into shareholders' hands and then they go out and buy other stocks. So all that cash pouring into the hands of shareholders is allowing the stock market to continue its nice rally. Well, don't forget that, you know, those guys who, who are buying these companies, they must have an eye on interest rates. And as these interest rates go up, you know, at some point they're going to just decide it isn't worth it to, to, buy, uh, to buy these companies anymore. I mean, the calculation they're making is they're looking at something called earnings yield, which is the reverse of PE. That's, how, you know, how much earning you get for every dollar you spend on the stock. And the earnings yields are, you know, running above the interest rate. So, you know, it makes sense to buy a business. Um, but I think they're kind of stretching their, their uh, parameters a bit because their incentive structure. I mean, these guys get paid when they put the deal together. Typically, the private equity guys now will get, you know, they'll do some assumptions about how much money they're going to make, and then they'll take a fee out of the company. So they actually get paid up front. And what matters to them is putting together sensible-looking deals and not actually having those deals perform. So I think, you know, in higher rates and some realism about future earnings have real potential to torpedo this private equity boom that we've been seeing the last several months. This could be ending really soon. But is the, um, the a lot of the money that the Chinese were buying bonds with, is that not now finding its way? Are they not now buying equities with that money? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if, if they have $700 billion worth of, you know, U.S. assets on hand, and now they've decided, I think they announced that they're going to shift $200 billion of that into other investments. And out of that $200 billion, $3 billion has gone into, and that's a tiny amount, that's, you know, one and a half percent of that 200 billion has now gone into Blackstone private equity fund. One thing's for sure, they're not going to put the rest of the 200 billion into private equity. I mean, it certainly helped the private equity market for a, you know, few weeks. But, uh, 
uh, you know, that news has. But I, I think a lot of that money is going to find its way into into other investments. And one of the important other investments that uh, that money might find its way into would be gold stocks and, uh, and, and gold bullion. So, uh, you know, uh, perhaps that's one of the things that's driving the gold market. Now the Chinese are shifting some of that 200 billion of assets into the gold market. It won't take much to push the gold, much of that money, if 3 billion of that goes into gold, and that could easily be happening now. If 3 or 10 or 30 billion goes into gold and silver, that could have a big and dramatic impact on the, uh, on the gold price. And if interest rates are rising in the bond markets, surely that makes bonds more attractive? Well, yeah, you know, at some point, bond, you know, bond yields get high enough that people say, right, bonds are a better buy than stocks, and the money shifts out of stocks and into bonds, and that stabilizes, you know, bond yields for a while, even brings them down somewhat. But, you know, at the moment, people see the momentum is for higher rates, and I think they're reluctant to buy bonds until they see a sign of the bottom. So, yeah, I think we'll see that bonds get to 5% yields or 5.2% yields, and then the money starts shifting out uh, out of stocks and into bonds. So we've got several turning points in place here, and there was another turning point that you mentioned to me. What was that? Well, I think you're, you're obviously uh, very interested in the progress of property prices in the UK, and one thing that I've been experimenting with for the last three or four years is, uh, is, is an indicator which, you know, hopefully would tell me sort of slightly early what's going to happen to property prices. And uh, about two years ago, I created a sort of bellwether index of uh, four or five, and I've, you know, tampered with it a little bit, but four or five builder stocks as an indicator of what happens with, with, with property. The problem with the property indices in the UK, I'm sure you're aware of this, is that there's a big lag that, you know, when the number is released for, uh, for June, um, and uh, I don't know what, you know, there are various, you know, indices released for June at different times of the month. You know, you've got Halifax and Nationwide and uh, London Register, uh, not uh, the, uh, the register prices, a uh, land register, that's what I'm trying to think of. Um, those prices come out at various times, but it's after a long lag. And if you look in detail at that, the actual prices that they're picking up are probably, you know, six to eight to even ten weeks old by the time it's released. So you're actually not looking at the current market when those figures come out. You're looking at the market, you know, two months ago. So, you know, I was really looking for some kind of an indicator which is completely up to date. And what could be better than, you know, real-time stock prices? So uh, I've been using these indicators, and they have actually a rather amazing uh, record of uh, tracking and forecasting and leading the, uh, the house price index. And uh, on uh, GEI, we're going to, if we haven't already published it, we'll put up a chart showing, uh, showing those, <coughs> those um, indications from the building, building stocks compared with the HPI indices. And you'll see that they track very well. Now, what, I, <clears throat> what I've been really interested in, in the last few days is Barrett Development, BDEV, B-D-E-V, is a symbol. And <clears throat> this stock um, represents the builder with the heaviest exposure to London. Uh, well over half of their developments, uh, at least this was true a couple of years ago, I think it was close to two-thirds or more of their developments, 
we're in London, the London area. So it has been a pretty good indicator. Um, again, it, and it gives a, because it's real-time prices, it's a little bit ahead of the other indices. It's been a good indicator sometimes of, of what's happening to London prices. Now, what's really interesting is yesterday, BDEV broke down. BDEV is in a channel, and uh, I'm probably making this call a little on the early side, but it seems to have fallen out of a channel that it's been in, and it happened on fairly heavy volume. Um, BDEV was down, I think, 2.8% or 2.3% yesterday, um, breaking down to 1,060 on pretty heavy volume, and that's a sign to me that it may want to go quite a bit lower, and therefore... Um, I would, I would guess that we're actually seeing uh, what may be the first signal that London property prices are breaking down. Um, it's a little on the early side this call. Let's wait a few more days and see if the breakdown in BDEV continues. But if it does, um, I think that indicator is calling the top in London prices. Well. If we get interest rate rises later in the week, that isn't going to help. But nevertheless, calling the top in the London property market is a, uh, well, it's a very big statement. Well, look, I mean, I, I have to say that I've probably uh, been accused of calling the top many times, and I've seen potential for tops right along the way. But the last time we saw the builders... Uh, in a position where they were signaling a turn in the market, uh, they gave a kind of false break. And the false break lasted all of about two or three days, and the market quickly, the builders quickly bounced back, came back into their channels, and went roaring upwards. And that happened back in October, November in 2005. And as you know well, the, the pause that was happening in 2005 led to a nice rally, uh, thanks to... Uh, a cut in rates uh, in August uh, 2005, and thanks as well to very substantial increases in money supply in 2006. Well, anyway, the builders actually gave us a false message, and then they gave a very good indication that you know property was going back up. Well, let's see. I mean, this could, you know, this call I just made could be a false break again, um, and we could get you know two days worth of signal out of this. But if BDEV breaks down, I'll be very, very surprised if the other builders don't follow and if the London property market also doesn't follow. So I think this is something to watch. Okay, well, folks, we're going to do a big program on uh, the London property market in the coming weeks, so uh, keep your ears peeled for that. Uh, in the meantime, Michael, thank you very much. Uh, why don't you give out the website address as we close? Yes, thanks, Dominic. Um, please come on and have a look. Uh, the website is www.globaledgeinvestors.com, and it's a great place to talk about all, all the subjects we discuss here from markets, uh, you know, financial markets to China to uh, property markets and whatever else catches your fancy. Even tea. Even tea. <laughs> Michael Hampton, thank you very much. Thank you, Dominic. Commodity Watch Radio is presented and produced by Dominic Frisbee for Mindsight with music by Manolo Camp. To discuss the markets and have your say, why not visit our bulletin board at globaledgeinvestors.com. That's globaledgeinvestors.com.